Hey, Papa, guess what? What? I need new clothes. Baby needs new clothes. Where do you think we could go find some cool designs to, from to wear? Oh, I think I have an idea. I mean, we've got some awesome designs for people to wear. Oh, I didn't think about that. If you go over to our website, what is that one again? It's um, tpublic.com slash foster care nation. Yeah, I think we got t-shirts and tank tops and hoodies and sweatshirts and baby any- onesies. They don't have any dad size onesies there, do they? Mm, I don't think so. But the baby onesies are super adorable. Yeah, they are. They even got some kids hoodies and, and short sleeve t-shirts, long sleeve t-shirts. Maybe we should go over there and check it out. Where is that again? It's over at Tee Public, right? Yeah. Foster Care Nation? Yeah. TEEpublic.com slash Foster Care Nation. You can forget a lot of things, Foster Care Nation, but never forget this. You're listening to Unparalleled Studios. I should know. Foster Care Nation, listen up. This is Foster Care and Unparalleled Journey. Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. Hello and welcome back to Foster Care, an unparalleled journey with Jason and Amanda. And today we bring you the bestsellers publishing prize winner and author of the book Fancy Prison. I'm not going to try and remember the subtitle because she gave it to me and I didn't write it down and went, yeah, I don't have that now. So <laughs> we have <laughs> Tina Fumo here with us today. Hi, Tina. H- Hello, Amanda and Jason. So yeah, it's Fancy Prison calling BS on the child welfare industry. And Jason, I can tell you the day I came up with that subtitle, I was in the writing process and I went for a walk just to sort of clear my head. And then boom, I'm like that subtitle kind of came into my head and I wrote it down and it kind of went from a working title to the subtitle to the final end. (laughs) You know, that's what I decided to keep it as. Okay. Well, through some of the things I do, I meet a lot of guys across the, the world and I will say, you just passed the Canadian test. You don't say process right. You say in the Canadian <laughs> method. Process. I, oh, I yes. I've, noticed, I've noticed that. Yes, yes. We say process. Yeah, we don't say it. No, and it's not, I don't say it right. You don't say it right. <laughs> because, because I'm on Canadian soil right now. So, yeah, I have noticed that, though. I, we say process. That, that's like my, my litmus <laughs> test for where somebody's from. If, if you say process, I know you're probably from Canada. So <laughs> I'm not going to argue with how it's spelled. I know it's spelled with an O, but we just say it. <laughs> so you're from Canada, and, and you've had some a brush with the uh, – with the Canadian child welfare system. And so why don't you tell us about that and, and what that looked like in your family? Well, uh, what it looked like was absolute hell on earth. But uh, about five years ago, my granddaughter was born. She, I uh, raised my um, daughter in, she was born in beautiful Banff and the cover, I'm just going to hold the cover of my book up here because on the cover is a beautiful little baby. And then a, a picture of a mountain, Mount Rundle, which is Banff. 
And my book and our story, it starts off with me driving through a blizzard from my home. I live in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, to get to my daughter in a small town in British Columbia, which is where my grandbaby was born. And in the last month, the last you know six weeks or so of my daughter's pregnancy, child welfare had been called on her. And then, and even now, still to this day, we were really confused about what the issue was. She hadn't even given birth to the baby, and uh, there was a call to child protection. So they got involved in it. And then after the baby was born, they were still involved. They tried to take the child at the hospital. And we were fortunate because we had a friend who became our biggest advocate. Suzanne was there in a doula capacity. And she got them to back off temporarily. So that trip that I'm making through this blizzard at the beginning of my book was when the baby was about 12 days old. And to to get to the bottom of this, like, what's going on? I'm really confused. I'm not getting any straight answers from the social workers. My daughter is very stressed. She's just become a mother. And I went there to help, like, to and and I wanted to see my grandbaby. So that's kind of the motivation. And that's how our story starts out. And I got there and two days later, they took the baby anyway. So and I was just so confused. I mean, I don't have a criminal record, no drugs, no alcohol, nothing. And I don't think there's a single CFSA act across this country that doesn't state in some form or another that children automatically go to next of kin. I was right there. And there was absolutely no reason for my grandbaby not to have gone to me, but instead they gave her to strangers in foster care. Turned out they were very nice people, a beautiful um, older couple, but I didn't know that at the time. At the time they were strangers to me and I was just so utterly traumatized and confused and shattered when they took our grandbaby at two weeks old. Well, I have to ask because at that point, there was two moms and dealing with it, you know, baby's mama and then baby's mama's mama. Yeah. <laughs> I can only imagine that that created two, uh, two mama bears in the room. Well, yeah, it's that's a very, really interesting question, Jason, because what you would think is normal, which is take your baby and run, because that's kind of the mama bear instinct is to fight. That's something that the social workers sit there with their clippy boards and judgment and they go, oh, she ran away with the baby. Oh, she's not stable. That's a normal reaction, but then they twist it around and make it abnormal. So I think in our case, because my daughter and I were pretty unified and I think they were just trying to exploit any weaknesses in our relationship um, and that didn't happen that they like in the end that's why in the end that's why they lost I mean there was a lot of other things it was like you'd think it was an easy thing to get back a baby who already, who already belonged to us it wasn't like once she got into foster care it was quite difficult to get her out because of the paperwork and the bureaucratic nonsense but that initial moment when they announced they were trying going to take her away from us and I think what they were trying to 
intentionally cause was this discourse between my daughter and I that we were like, I was blindsided, absolutely blindsided. I had absolutely no idea that this is how the system operated and it's BS. That's why, that's what I called. That's why I called BS in my book. Yeah. Well, I can, I can only say they should probably be happy that you didn't respond the way that most mama bears do. And that is to turn and, and kill the thing that's trying to mess with their babies. Cause, uh, I mean, I'm not gonna say you didn't well, have the urges, right? I, we we all know know those urges, but that sounds like cooler heads prevailed in the long run. Yeah, you know what? Yeah, well, it, I mean, my ability to stay calm probably helped us in the end, and then my ability to be uh, help my daughter stay grounded helped in the end. If my daughter had been alone, it would have been a very very different situation. She would have been cornered and isolated and she would have had no support so the fact that she had me and then Suzanne there um, was made all the difference in the world and Suzanne had inner knowledge of the system and she knew every single so they took the baby but then like I said you'd think it would be easy to get her back it wasn't Suzanne was with us every step of the way and it's hard to imagine that kind of support, but we had it every step of the way. She knew every single dirty trick that they would pull. And I'm sure that they were wondering, like, you know, how do these, how do these, how does his mom and grandma know this? But, but we didn't care. It's like, yeah, we, we kind of know where you're going. So we're going this way, you know, and just to throw them off, which was really all that we needed because they were just waiting for us to make a mistake which we did not do and it took seven months to finally get a judge who could apply some common sense we hadn't made a single mistake and then finally that judge had the power to end it and that's what he did so that was up but it took seven months of of living a very very stressful not sure if they were going to come back into our lives and take the baby again and yeah it was it was just a nightmare i can i can only imagine i mean i couldn't imagine being apart from my new infant for seven months being a a new mother and losing that time with your baby the bonding and all the firsts and everything else yeah, we yeah, we I'm gonna stop you right there a minute. We didn't lose seven months with her. We got her back after 27 days. But what we did in the beginning helped because I I know of a lot of cases that that's exactly what happens is that the baby gets taken. And then the parents get judged, not on their ability to take care of a child, but on their ability to navigate the system. And if they're not able to navigate the system and show up for court and know to lawyer up and um, get the proper like court documents and affidavit, if they don't know how to do that, then they lose visits with their kid. They lose custody. They lose rights. They make mistakes, you know? And, and again, we didn't do any of that. We knew the court system. We had Suzanne. She helped us navigate through it. And, um, and again, I didn't have any criminal records. So in the end that like, they really couldn't find anything on me, uh, even though they were trying to make my daughter to be out this meth head, which she just wasn't like they had the evidence to exonerate her and they just chose to ignore it. I mean, it was just really ridiculous to tell you the truth. Like it was just beyond shocking. We did. My daughter did qualify for legal aid because she was a single mom and he was really, he was a very good lawyer. Um, but again, it's like if she had been alone, she wouldn't have won. Like she just, they, 
it was just too much. There was just too much power, too much money, too much experience exploiting single moms that, that she was up against. So she needed a team to help her. And, and that's what we were, was a team. Yeah. And we were always, even though they would try to um, further complicate and confuse the situation, like in one of my, and I recorded everything. I would just sit my phone. I didn't ask. It's like, no, I'm recording this. And just to make it all clear. And in one of those recordings, the social worker was saying to me, like one of my options was to go to court and file. Um, oh, I can't remember what it's called an FLA, like a family litigation act or something like that, where I could apply to take my granddaughter away from her mother. And then, but that's not what we were trying to do. We were just trying to get her back with her mother because these allegations weren't even true that she was a meth head. And we, and have me there as support and then make this whole thing go away because it wasn't true and it's not fair. So, but it's not, it wasn't easy to do. That's for sure. Like that's kind of what I wanted, but their narrative was very different that they wanted to uh, perpetuate. Yeah. Well, I have to imagine that if they thought she was a meth addict, you know, they had some reason to believe that, right. Some, something triggered that thought in their house or in their head rather. And they probably don't show up to the hospital just trying to take random babies. So did you ever find out what, what or who, told them to come come to that hospital that day to get that kid or or even you you mentioned it was while she was pregnant well did you find who the original call was what that was about we we speculated we didn't find out for sure hey there foster care nation We'd like to take a quick minute to step out of the podcast here and ask you guys for a little bit of support. If you could share an episode with people, friends, in a group, with family, anywhere where there's somebody who would like to hear this. Also, if you'd like to join us and support our mission, a couple dollars a month would be really helpful. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash foster care nation. Now back to the show. We spe- we speculated. We didn't find out for sure, but about uh, a year when the baby was a little over a year old, we applied to the agency in, in Canada. It's called um, uh, FOIP, so Freedom of Information Privacy Protection Act. You can apply to this provincial government body and get them to get all the records that the government has on you a lot of it's heavily redacted so it's almost like a jigsaw puzzle that you're putting together um but and at that point actually my daughter and i we couldn't even we we could not look at another stick of paper about this like we were so fed up and so traumatized it was my husband actually he went through this giant jigsaw puzzle and looked at dates, looked at patterns, and then he's the one who figured out who had made the original call. But back to that original call, we had, so what they did was they coerced a signature out of my daughter in that last month of pregnancy. And we suspect they got her urine samples from just a regular routine doctor's appointment when doctors check for pH levels in pregnancy at the those last two or last month or whatever. And then they got a hold of that urine sample and it came back clean. Then after the baby was born, they tested the umbilical cord. That came back clean. Plus my daughter is telling them that I don't I don't use meth. I never have and never will. Like I don't, you know, I don't understand 
where you're getting your, your information from. And I don't understand why, what you keep looking for. So when I arrived there, again, very confused, haven't gotten any straight answers over the phone or by email or anything like that. So I show up and then they tell me the placenta is being tested. So they just kept digging and digging and digging, even though they already had evidence to exonerate my daughter, like these allegations of meth aren't even true. The baby's fine. She was born healthy. She, uh, my doctor even, or sorry, my daughter's doctor even had, uh, gave a letter for court saying that, you know, she witnessed my daughter's maternal instinct. And in her opinion, the baby should return, be returned to her mother. All of this was ignored. They only focused on the negative stuff. So allegations all prove false and they, they're just smart enough to go, oh, okay, so we're done now and they leave you alone or they don't apparently. So any ideas? Why not? Yeah, I do have ideas and it's really hard to prove, but I think that they probably had a family or waiting to adopt a healthy white baby. That's my suspicion. Yeah. But it's hard to prove. As much yeah. as I don't like to hear that, I, <laughs> I'm not going to argue with you because, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it, we're a part of that, that foster and adoptive world. You know, we, we've adopted Ooh. four. Yeah. Yes, four, four kids. So I lose. <laughs> you say that like a question. It is like, a question. <laughs> yes. We have adopted four, but I mean, I, I know what it's like to be a new mother and mm-hmm. that's a, a scary time an exciting time. And to have all of those things put on her shoulder I mean, and she's probably thinking, okay, I, I do these tests and they come back negative. I'm good. I get my baby. They'll leave me alone. And that that's not the case. That's got to be so scary mm-hmm. and so frustrating. Mm-hmm. I, I can't imagine her emotions. And, you know, not only that, just having a, a baby, you're hormonal. And then if mm-hmm. any sort of, you know, depression or, or yeah. I mean, my goodness, yeah. I, I can only, yeah, I can only fathom what your daughter was going through yeah. and how horrible and scary and hurtful that was yeah should we had to we each had to process our trauma differently afterwards and a lot of our healing came from the fact that we were able to get our baby back uh, after 27 days physically the paper war ensued after that but having her with us really helped with the healing and having that like I said, I never wanted to take my daughter's baby away from her I wanted the baby with my daughter and I would help her in a support capacity because I, I think I know my daughter better than you people. You've been dealing with her for six weeks and all you're doing is focusing on the negative. I think I'm her mom and I have a better idea of what her capacity is. Okay. And so that helped immensely, but it took, you know, it's interesting. You should say that Amanda, because it took my daughter about, about four years to finally tell me what she was thinking in that moment when they took her baby because her reaction was different than mine and I and I detailed that a little bit more in my book and it was like I wouldn't have known that and unless I wrote the book and asked her because yeah it's not I mean for you know I recorded that whole two-hour um, trauma when they were sort of leading up to and asking very pointed questions. And then they announced they were taking the baby and then all of the emotions and the foster family arriving and my 
you know, my daughter and I are reacting. I recorded that whole thing. I have never been able to listen to it. Never. It was the worst day of my life. And it was so emotional. And I thought maybe I'd have to listen to it again when I wrote the book, but I didn't. I just kind of remembered that feeling enough to keep the story flowing. And I and I shared, um, I think I was just telling you guys before we started recording, I just shared a really special connection I had with my two-week-old grandbaby in that in that moment where it just gave me a little bit of hope and we needed it because it was uh there was a I mean 27 days to get her back that's a pretty short time as far as these cases were concerned are concerned but it was the longest 27 days of my life that's for sure oh I imagine I imagine Amanda mentioned the uh you know things like depression you know and Postpartum depression is a real thing. You know, I, I've had mm-hmm, friends of mine mm-hmm. who've dealt with it pretty heavy in their life. Um, mm-hmm. What kind of mental health effects has this had? You know, after you, even after you got the you got the, your baby back and life is moving on, how has that affected your your or your daughter's mental health dealing with this? Because I, there's got to be some kind of effects there. I I would definitely. Oh, oh I'd, I'd be yeah. terrified to have another baby. Yeah. No, she's. She has certain stressors now and uh, she has, she hasn't had another baby, but that's not to say that that will not ever happen again. She's at the point now where she has healed, but we have to be aware of certain stressors. Um, For example, moving, because that first year we had to move so many times to keep the situation mobile and make it very clear to the social workers that if they pulled one of their tricks of moving the baby like a hundred kilometers away to make visitation more difficult, we would just follow. So we would have just followed and moved into another hotel kind of thing. So we ended up moving quite a bit that year. And I think now, even now moving, it's a stressor for her. And so, yeah, we just have to be aware of it for me mentally, mental health wise, I had to process a lot of anger and, um, frustration and confusion. And I've resigned myself to the fact that I'll probably never get answers to it. But I don't trust the government at all anymore, like anymore at all. They're what they want to project as a narrative and them trying to follow their own policies and procedures, but then they do the complete opposite. Uh, Like for me, I'm just absolutely disgusted that this is taxpayer funding jobs and how they're putting the jobs more in front of families and exploiting poor people. So yeah, that to me, that's my mental health is that, Oh my God, is this even Canada? Like this is ridiculous. You know what we had to go through and how uh, little babies and children are being treated. Well, big brother, if you're listening, I love my country, but I don't know that I trust my government. <laughs> I know exactly what you're saying. You know, we may be, yeah. you know, a, a border apart in a different country, but there's a lot of similarities that we share. And I think both of us have reason to believe that these sort of things would never happen to us. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think that people who are, well, maybe not your audience, because they probably understand the system a little bit more than the average person. But the average person, and even me, before 2017, I was probably that person who thought, oh, well, if they're involved, they must have the reasons. No, read my book. So those are the people that I would love to read 
have read my book because if you that's what you think and that's what the automatic assumption and judgment that you conclude that's what I'm challenging read my book and and the whole time when you're reading your book just imagine if this was your kid because I don't just talk about our story I go into um, our friend's uh, backstory and how she got to be so knowledgeable on their dirty tricks and what they would do. And then there was another mom that we helped and she eventually got her kids back after a year and a half of fighting. Um, and then I touch a bit, a bit on the little baby here on the cover, how her mom, uh, Jamie was a single mom, Jamie Sullivan, and her baby girl, Delana, was four months old. She just had a doctor's appointment, was healthy, happy, you know, bouncy 19-pound baby girl. And then a call was made and social workers show up on Jamie's doorstep. Sick, uh, She's put into foster care and six days later, the baby was dead. They have never gotten any answers or any, uh, they don't even know why the baby was taken in the first place. The foster parent who was supposed to be taking care of that child has never been charged for that baby dying in her care. And yeah, I, I like it's, I, I, at this point, I have more questions than answers, but at least right now, and what I want my book to do is start asking the right questions. So re, if you're reading the book, Imagine if this is your child. Imagine if Delana Sullivan, this little baby, was your baby, and they showed up and took your baby away. And by the end of my book, be asking yourself, how does any of this sound like it's in the best interest of the child? And and does any of this make any sense at all? Because to me, common sense is definitely lacking. Uh, it, it's not difficult to see if a child is thriving and maybe if parents need a little bit of help, then you help them. Like you don't go, how is taking a child away from their parents a solution? Like, well, how did we get here as a society? That's not a solution, okay? That just defers so many problems down the road. And yeah, yeah, yeah. anyway, yeah. I, I do ask a lot of questions questions in my book because it just doesn't make any sense to me well the other people i'd like to listen to this story read that book and are the people who have whose kids are in foster care the people who believe that it's impossible to get mm. through it because what so far we have not had a whole lot of people i think two people very few uh, yeah very I'd, few we've you done know, 100, kids, almost 150 episodes yeah, now, kids come into care and you know the system the parents just you know they feel like you know, my kids are gone. There's nothing I can do. Mm. I cannot mm -hmm. win this fight. Mm. And they give up. Yeah, absolutely. That tends to, yeah, that tends to be what happens. And I, um, I, I know that there was a period of time, oh, where I was just so, so obsessed by this because, like, just not trusting the government and just talking to anybody who would listen. Finally, I wrote the book. So it was, it gave me a, a sense of closure. So that was good. But during that time, you know, and my husband remembers it because it was like, you need to let it go. You need to like, you know, so he was actually happy when I won this publishing prize because he wanted me to, you know, have some kind of closure to it. But in one of those um, conversations I had with people when I was always talking about this, always, she said that she worked in the system and that by far was her biggest criticism is that, when uh, parents lose their children, if, say, two or three years down the road, they get their act cleaned up, 
they can't get their kids back because by then the kids are either adopted out or they've lost all contact. And she said, you know, there's, so she had a lot of criticism for it. Like she said, yes, the children needed to be safe, but to cut the kids off, even after the parents have maybe cleaned up their act, there's got to be a better way, you know, and if the children are still bouncing around the foster care system, then why can't steps be made to reunite them back with the parents? If the parents have, you know, kick the addiction or whatever the issue was at that time. Do you know what I mean? So, and she was somebody who worked in the system and that was her criticism. Yeah. Well, you know, you know, talking about, you know, the people who've helped you along, helped you, you know, your friend Suzanne and, and all that, um, to help you along the way to understand how to walk through this journey. And I think you're in that role now where you're, you're giving that advice to others mm-hmm. to understand, Hey, you have, you have some agency here. You have some ability to step out and sometimes it's just willing to be willing to step out and then be that obnoxiously loud person who says, Hey, I'm not going to go away. I'm not that easy to get rid of, but what kind of advice would you give to others who are maybe in that place? The moms and dads whose kids might be in the foster system and they believe that they'll never get their kids back. You know, what, what advice would you give these people? Because they need an advocate. Hey there, Foster Care Nation. If you'd like to find yourself in a group with like-minded people, head over to Facebook and you can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash foster care UJ. We've got a group over there where we talk about foster care, we talk about adoption, and we talk about all the things related. If your podcast player allows it, you can also reach down and hit that subscribe button so you get notified every week when we put up uploads. Every Tuesday, a new episode comes out. We'd love to see you next week. Now back to the show. What advice would you give these people? Because they need an advocate. Yeah, no, they do. I get asked that question a lot, Jason. And it's such a hard question to answer because so many cases are different. I guess my, my, I guess the first thing that um, I, I probably would say to people, and I did it kind of naturally because I was just so confused. I was kind of quiet anyway, but if social workers show up on your doorstep, your go-to in your head should be, because you're actually, you're never charged with a criminal um, offense. So you don't get read your Miranda rights. I think that's what you call it in the States there. So in your head, just think you have the right to remain silent and you have the right to a lawyer. Um, So automatically you have those rights. So it's probably better if they're asking you questions and you're confused and you, you maybe have knee jerk um, responses to those questions, it's better just maybe to say nothing and then just think lawyer, hmm, do I need a lawyer, lawyer, lawyer. And, and it, that being said too, and I wish I'd done this more, but you have to be, you have to be really calm. You have to stay calm. Cause I think when social workers show up, and they have so they have the power to take the children and they use that intimidation power they pretty much get that reaction from parents it's like oh who made the call and what and, you know parents reaction is to take their children and run and who called what did they say kind of thing it's just like just remain calm you have rights and you need a lawyer to assert your rights because i think i think in our case if we had had a lawyer from the very beginning, uh, because I made the mistake of meeting with them, thinking that they were on my side, I'll you know I'll never make that mistake again, ever. 
if it ever happens again. But uh, like if you have that lawyer and they see that you've lawyered up right away, maybe just maybe they'll back off because for them, it's a business. Like they just run it like a business. And if you lawyer up and they automatically know that they've got to start hiring lawyers now to negotiate with your lawyer, they don't want it to cost them a lot of money. So because as far as I can tell that they seem to target poor people who maybe don't have an education and don't know how to fight. They don't know what their rights are. They don't like, you know, they just, they, they have, they'll just give up before there's even a fight there because they're like, "Uh, I can't, I, I can't go up against the government. So, you know, if my book gives people hope, then that's kind of what, you know, kind of what I would like to have, but uh, yeah. So yeah, that answers your question a little bit, Jason, but it's a, it's a hard question. It really depends on what stage they're at and, you know, what their situation is. And, and I give other examples in my book. I mean, in our case, the best way that we were able to win because we had Suzanne, but then to get them to stay out of this, out of our lives was because I had nothing. I, I had no criminal record or no drugs or no alcohol. So the best way to deal with CPS is not to give them any reason to be in your life in the first place, okay? And if you've done nothing wrong, which is was the case with me, I didn't do anything wrong. There was no, there was no case against me, no complaint. So why are you investigating me? What, because I became a Grammy? In the end, that prevails because they really had no right to be investigating me and they certainly didn't have a right to take my grandbaby away from me. Well, yeah. And I mean, you, you hit some really key points there, you know, because children's division shows up on your doorstep and they knock on your door. And I don't know how it is in Canada because I'm, I'm not in Canada. I've never lived in Canada, but a lot of times when children's division shows up at your doorstep over here, it's not just children's division. The police are with them mm-hmm. and it's very mm-hmm. intimidating and it's very scary. And, you know, being a mother and having lots of children, I can say that that is the scariest thing that can happen to a parent other than, you know, the death of our daughter. That That's the next scariest thing would be someone coming to take my children and there being nothing that I could do about it. You know, and I can see, you know, how people would overreact and get upset Mm -hmm. and be angry, you know, and Mm -hmm. cry and maybe yell and lose their temper and, Mm -hmm. and that being used against them. Yeah. And that's why they bring the cops with them too. They do that here in Canada as well is because they, they say it's for the social worker's own protection because they know that the parents are going to like lunge out. And like you said before, Jason, you know, the mama burial. Oh God. And it's not like I didn't think it, you know, I think in my book, <laughs> I, I think in my book, I had said, you know, uh, they kept regurgitating the same thing about my daughter and it was all negative, just kept over and over. And I got to the point where I wanted to lunge across that courtroom and gouge that social worker's eyes out. Of course I didn't. And if I did, if I would have lost my temper, I would have lost my granddaughter too. I would have lost a lot more than just my temper, but yeah, it's they bring I think they they bring the police. They say it's for their social workers protection, but it's also a big intimidation factor. You're quite right about that, Amanda. Yeah. Yeah, we talk a lot. Of, well, I talk a lot to, to some of the guys in a, in a dad's group I'm in about learning to be the calm in the storm. And and this is a great mm-hmm. example of why that's so important, because life is going to have its storms and having that ability to, to walk 
in the calmness, even when the storm is mm-hmm. raging around you, that that makes such a huge difference. And now I mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. you've done that and you you modeled that for your daughter mm-hmm. in that hard time. Yeah, what's that done in your yeah. daughter's relationship? It's uh, we well we have grown stronger in a different way in a different way than we ever thought possible for sure. But we it went through stages. So my book is called Fancy Prison, and in the book, that's because I had to find somewhere else to live with my daughter uh, while we served out these court orders. So during that, t- and I couldn't work because I couldn't let them out of my sight. And so during that time, my daughter and I were human. We got on each other's nerves. And but fortunately, we have two different schedules. She tends to be a night owl, well, where she's up, you know, piddling around doing dishes and sorting laundry till midnight, one in the morning. Whereas me, I'm older, obviously, and I would be crashed by eight o'clock at night. I was so exhausted and taking care of a baby and just, you know, all the all the stuff that we were sorting through, just dealing with the confusion. And so I would be drained by nine o'clock and then I get up really early in the morning. Um, So yeah, that's kind of the, our saving grace is that I had time to myself with my grandbaby early in the morning. And then my daughter sort of her downtime was after nine o'clock after I was asleep and then she'd have sort of her solace as well. Yeah. (laughs) But, But yeah, we just, we talked more. She don't like kids are always kind of interested about, you know, what happened when they were born and what they did at this stage and, you know, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, we had a lot of talks about that, but we, yeah. Wow. Sounds like you guys have been through quite the, quite the experience. (laughs) And hopefully it's brought you and your daughter closer in a lot of ways. You know, if you can't go through these tragedies and find some, some little piece of beauty that came out of it, it it makes the pain almost seem useless and inconsequential. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I I think in our relationship too, it's really, and we already had this anyway, but it just got, um, it, it just was more intensified, but it's re- very important to have healthy boundaries because my daughter trusted us. She trusted me as her mother. She trusted Suzanne. She knew that I wasn't there to take away her baby and to undermine her as a mother. I was there to support her. So that was really important to have those boundaries. And so we were able to work together better I think knowing that you know and having that trust and you know I don't know if every mother-daughter relationship has that you know probably not because I think a lot of them do end up fighting in front of the social workers and then they use that they exploit that weakness but we just didn't do that yeah which was good which was really good yeah that's amazing. You, yeah, you guys have quite mm-hmm. the story, and I hope you're an inspiration mm-hmm. to to the parents who who are struggling through this. Because I think that one of the one of the things that we would see a lot more families reunified if the birth parents really felt that they could win the battle, and that's that's been a struggle mm-hmm. that we've seen a lot of parents go through. And you know whether or not there is addiction issues, because a lot of times if someone is in the middle of an active addiction or or coming out of an, an addiction. They don't know that they can. They don't feel like they can. You know, there's a whole lot of other psychological mm-hmm. stuff going on. So hopefully stories like yes. yours will will help to inspire sure. them and know that that it is possible. It just requires some work, help, and some advice from some people. And hopefully they can find some of that in your book. Um, where, yeah. where do people yeah. go to find your book? Yeah, it's uh, well, it's on Amazon, but probably the uh, easiest way to find my book, find me, 
if uh, with social media and then link back to uh, podcasts like yours here, Jason, if you're going to have it on uh, YouTube or on the podcast, uh, just Google Fancy Prison by Tina Fumo. Um, but be specific and put my name in there. Because if you just Google fancy prison, you're going to end up with guys in, you know, orange suits doing uh, country country club. Uh, yeah, that, that's not what my book is about. It's fancy prison calling BS on the child welfare industry. Google my name, Tina Fumo, F-U-M-O. And the Amazon link comes up and I'm on LinkedIn and other social media. And then... Um, are you on YouTube or you, you said that you record this and then post it to well, it, the, it does, what, Spotify? It does go to YouTube. Um, I think mm-hmm. uh, it, it automatically sends out a, a blank, uh, uh, just has a podcast start and plays it there. So you can listen to it there or it's on Spotify, Apple, um, all, all the, the different platforms. Oh, all the places. Yeah. I have spent yeah, like so. hours and hours trying to figure out where all the places are. Like oh. <laughs> so people can, can find it regardless of what app they use because personally, yeah. If they want to sponsor me or something, sure, I'll I'll take a sponsorship. But I use Podbean; their app is just intuitive to me, so that's one that I use. So I just I make sure that I, I put it everywhere, so anybody who's who's searching for information like this can mm-hmm. find it, you know, and help them through their journey. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, sounds good. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time and for your story today, Tina. It's it's not often that we have somebody who's willing to tell a story about a kid being taken from them and their journey to get it, get their children back. And I think it's so encouraging for people to hear those stories. And I just want to be just really upfront. We really super appreciate anyone who's willing to tell that story because mm-hmm. if you had a kid taken, you know, people do assume you've done something wrong because the state yeah, workers very, obviously never make a mistake. Yeah. It's very, no, it's very shameful and they exploit that. It's very humiliating and they put a lot of shame on you. And yeah, definitely working, you know, writing this book, I, again, put it all out there. I just, I don't really trash the social workers. Yes, they do make mistakes, but again, they don't, they certainly don't own up, own up to them. But when you're reading through my book, I just kind of stick to the facts and stick to the truth and then uh, allow the reader to draw their own conclusions and empathize a little bit. Like if this was your kid how would you react? You know? So yeah, absolutely. Okay. Foster care nation. Thank you for listening to Tina's story. Now take her knowledge and wisdom to heart so you can create love and healing in your family and community. Be sure to come back next week. We have new episodes every Tuesday. If you would like to share your story as a guest, you can reach us at Jason at fostercarenation.com. You can connect with other like-minded people on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash foster care UJ. Don't forget, we have an account over at Buy Me a Coffee. It's a virtual tip jar where you can help us fund our mission for as little or as much as you want. It's at buymeacoffee.com slash foster care. The links to everything are in the show notes in your podcast player or at fostercarenation.com. And as always, you are so super awesome. I thank you guys. Oh, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening. Thanks, thanks, thanks. Unparalleled oh, Studios. Studios. Studios.